Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Mary Hess and Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Conde Frazier discuss her book, Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. This episode of Open Plaza Talks is part of the Theological Education Between the Times series, an initiative out of Candler School of Theology at Emory University. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Mary Hess. I'm on the faculty of Luther Seminary uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I'm the professor of educational leadership there. And I'm here today with Elizabeth Conde Frazier, who is the director of this Association for Hispanic Theological Education. And today we're going to talk about her recent book, Atando Cabos. Maybe I pronounced it wrong. Say it you for me. You got it right. Okay. Atando Cabos. <laughs> So I was really excited about this book, Elizabeth, because of course, I've followed your work for a long time um, and love what you write, but particularly right now, I'm in a seminary that's trying to think a lot about what we call missional leadership. And so the notion of what mission is and the challenging history around it and how we think about it today, all of that, your book just does this marvelous job of talking about the history and um and touching on the stuff that's not easy to um, remember because it's so painful, but also talking about some of what is life-giving. And you have this term you use, I'm, I'm gonna pronounce it badly, I'm sure, a mission integral, integral. Can you say a little bit about what that means? Sure. Um, let's just say, first of all, everyone should know that the book is, is written in both English and Spanish. Uh, you could get either one of those two versions. So even though the um, title sounds like it's Spanish, but it, it's in English. But if you want the book in Spanish, you can get it also. Um, Misión Integral, let me tell you how we came to this. Misión Integral is a term that's used in Latin America. It comes from the history of the uh, mainline denominations in Latin America as they are in conversation with um, Catholics and liberation uh, theology. And um, they were challenged around how it is that evangelical churches do or don't do mission, right? But Misión Integral uh, was a group of, of um, pastors, theologians, uh, who were really committed and came from a lot of, from different countries. And they would meet on, in a systematic way to uh, do theology together. And to really think about and talk about um, what is mission, uh, both theoretically, theologically, but also mission that really can land on the ground, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so um, Rene Padilla was a part of those conversations. Pedro Savage was a part of that. Just different uh, theologians. And um, as they did this work, then Misión Integral begins to evolve and they begin to write about it and so forth and to do theological education out of it. So for me, um, Orlando Costas was a mentor and he, all, he was a part of this, these conversations also. And for him, it was important that those of us uh, in North America, that we do theology in conversation with those in Latin America and the Caribbean. So 
he was trying to make that conversation take place. But for me, this really uh, became important because I really got distressed every time that I saw pastors who were listening to information that did not come from our context and using it for their idea of ministry or mission mm. um, for how it was that they, they would use these foreign theologies, if I might, um, as filters, lenses through which they were looking at their current work. And it really didn't work. And it was actually hurting their ministry and their worldview mm. that would then continue to inform their ministry. And young people in the churches, however, were moving in their community and moving the work of the church uh, very differently. And they wanted a theological, biblical um, place for discussing it. And they were saying, why is it that my pastor doesn't understand X, Y, and Z? And I would say to them, there's a history. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I start with the history of why is it that we haven't done theology this way, right? And then I talk about what is Misión Integral. So Misión Integral then, you know, these are missionaries that came to us that because they were coming from England, from the United States, they were not allowed by Latin American um, governments to take uh, political action or take particular stances, et cetera. And they taught us to pray rather than march. Let's just mm. put it that way. And the theology then never reflected those areas into which they were not allowed to go. Um, what that does for us today is that it diminishes the understanding of, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the words that we would use in, in, in our churches of uh -huh. salvation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and therefore, salvation informs what, how you see the mission of the church. And you see it as the saving of souls. But that's because you don't have this more integral way of thinking, right? A way that integrates the whole of life and how Christ comes to be a part of the whole of life, to bring life mm. more abundant into all of the arenas of our living, of lo cotidiano for us. And so what Misión Integral does is it opens up this definition and it says, no, it's about why we're poor. Mm -hmm. It's about our economies. It's about the injustices that inform those. It's about ecology. And it goes on and on and it keeps opening up each of those boxes that have been um, closed before, that had not been looked at before as a part of mm -hmm. how we understand mission, how we understand our lives and salvation, right? So Misión Integral opens that up. And then with Misión Integral, right? so does the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Mm -hmm. And this is a book that is mainly um, geared toward the Protestant Pentecostal um, reality. So yeah, the priesthood of all believers is, is a very important part, especially as pastors are multi-professional persons. And the church, the people in the church, the lay persons need to become a part of 
the mission. And these are ways that inform them theologically for why it is that they become involved. They're not just helping the pastor because the pastor works. They're becoming involved because this too is part of their calling because of their baptism, because of you know who they belong to and so on and so forth. And because they're bringing about the Basilea, right? Um, the, the reign of God. I like to use Basilea because it's not as uh, heavily um, burdened with images of hierarchy and patriarchy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you say Basilea and it's more neutral. Um, so yes, it's about a greater vision of the Basilea and how we all participate in it. It's, it's a vision that I know you've been working out of and from for a very long time, because I remember when we were in graduate school together, I remember learning from you in all the ways in which um, I wanted to think about theology in daily life. And we were doing work on religious education, but some of the most interesting work to me was coming out of Latin America because it was paying attention to the telenovelas and it was paying attention to, you know, all of this other kinds of daily practices, which you've now given the rest of us language for, right? I think when you talk about how the particular lenses that um, European missionaries were trained with, those were very constraining. They're also very constraining still. They live in a lot of theological education to this day. And I remember you talking about how you cared so much about the community that you were from and that you were speaking to, that you were less worried about what, I don't know, we were all worried in graduate school, a lot of us about the academy, about rising through the structures about, I don't know, all sorts of stuff like that. And you were like, no, you know what? I care about the biblical institutes. I care about how are people learning this stuff and working from it. And that demonstrated to me and to a bunch of other folk, how much this sense of incarnation, right? How much this, this embodied sense of who God is could come alive in the middle of all of that. It's given, I know it's given me an enormous amount of energy over the years. And when you talk about seeing how these things are intimately connected, right? So la I'm terrible with pronunciation. La yes, the the daily life, right? The, the, the basic ways in which um, all of these different pieces are intertwined and interconnected and that we need to be thinking about the public square, so to speak. We need to be thinking about what public theology is, not just as saving souls, because souls have bodies. What does it mean to pay attention to the bodies? And I know, I mean, you've, I watched you over your, your whole vocation here. Each time you picked contexts where you were literally doing that, right? I mean, I think about the, the, um, the university that you worked at where you were working with first generation Esperanza college of eastern university mm -hmm. yeah and and one of the things i remember listening to you say at one of the guild meetings was it really matters that people have access to this for a whole host of reasons can you talk a little bit about what that means to really to to be the whole to pay attention to the whole student mm -hmm. well it's not just the whole student right it's wherever you wherever you are in your vocation, um, that could be a traditional ministerial vocation or otherwise, wherever you are in, in your sense of vocation, um, you're, create, you're there as an agent of the Basilea, if I might. And you do care about access for persons. You know, as a pastor, I dealt too many times with um, helping people to find the right 
uh, doctor, um, mm. the place where they were going to be served uh, and understood, helping people to find medicine, especially mm. you know when the HIV uh, AIDS uh, pandemic right took place. Um, our community didn't have access to medicine that other communities did have access to. And so it's, it's always been about that, um, helping people to be able to uh, start their own businesses, um, to have access to citizenship, mm-hmm. right? All of those are issues of access because every time that you close a door, um, you're hoarding resources mm-hmm. for a particular community and you're leaving out others. And that means that you can then place those that you're leaving out in a position of, um, in a position where you can take advantage of them, of exploitation, right? And they're not able to become into the fullness of who God created them to be. Which for me, that coming into the fullness of who we were created to be is very much a part of the Basile, right? Mm-hmm. And education is one of the main tools for making that happen, educare, to bring people out, to lead them into that fullness. So when I worked at Esperanza, that's what that program was about. Uh, we worked with people who were working, uh, whose whose working schedules weren't like everybody else. Uh, they could They could, change around what your shift was going to be well how do you do education if you know this month you're working at night and next month you're working at day Mm -hmm. Um, how do you do that well you do it so that you have the same class being offered in the day and in the night you make sure that the syllabi are going to be exactly the same and the professors coordinate with each other the institution does the work so that those that we are serving are able to have what they need so someone could come in, for example, and say, um, next week I'm gonna be working the night shift and I need to be able to come in the day. And I would say, okay, well, this is gonna be your day class. And immediately the professor would know, yes, we're receiving this student here during the day for the next four months. And the student was able to continue the work that they were doing, professors that were talking between themselves and what grade the student had, et cetera, et cetera, how to best support that student. And they were able to continue their education. Otherwise, they never would have been able to graduate, right? Um, Access was about how much you had to pay for your education. Mm -hmm. And that meant that people who worked at the institution, when I went to hire, I would have to say, this is our mission. And because this is our mission, this is what we're getting paid here. Mm -hmm. Are you able to afford that right now in your life, right? I understand that not everybody was able to do that. and there were persons who would say, yes, that's exactly why I have come here, because I do want to serve in this way. And what that did is that you had a real committed group of people mm-hmm. who understood what your mission was, and they really wanted to work in that way with uh, students. Um, there were students who you had to help them believe in themselves. Mm-hmm. And you had to help them organize their lives. You know, One thing people don't realize is that when you live in a culture of poverty, you don't have uh, the privilege of a, of a daily routine, mm-hmm. for example, right? Um, you have a daily routine if you know what time you're going to work, if you know what time you're coming out, et cetera, et cetera. But if you don't have that, then 
you're doing chiripas. Chiripas are, you know, I do this kind of work today because, you know, someone wants me to paint, but I do that kind of work tomorrow because somebody needs me to do some catering. And, you know, you do a little bit here and a little bit there. And as it comes, you know, you take what comes as, as it comes. And, um, and if not, then, you know, I can run down to the pizza place and the guy knows me and he knows I work really good for him. And, you know, he'll hire me for the next three weeks because I got to make ends meet in between my next job. And so when, when that's how you have to do your life, you don't have routine, right? That's a privilege. And so when you're working with students in that way, um, they don't know how to organize their study life, um, their study space. Mm -hmm. They don't understand how it is that your psyche works with your mind being able to focus and so on and so forth. And you teach all of that. You teach all of that. You teach it not only to the students, but you teach it to their families or the persons who are going to be their, their supporters. And, um, and that becomes a whole other way of understanding how an institution is going to not only give access, but it's going to make people successful, right? Um, other schools will take in students and um, if the student fails, oh, well. Yeah. Right. Or, hey, we did X, Y and Z for you. But instead, we would go out and look for our students to say, yo, dude, you need to sit down. This is what's happening. How do we you know, help you even further? And students would say, well, you know, I'll just I'll just drop out. And I would say, no, because if you drop out at this point, you're going to be in debt. Right. You drop out at a certain point. You know how the whole FAFSA right. calendar and stuff works. Right. Then you're going to be in debt. And that's absolutely what you don't want. And so I would say, listen, I don't want your money. I want your success. So let's work at that. Right. Let's work at that because I'm, I'm going to get your money no matter what. The government's going to make sure of that. But I want your success. You need to get something from your money. And that made them want to try. Mm -hmm and want to go beyond their fears, um, beyond where they had ever imagined themselves and so on and so forth, they had to trust you. So the relational was the transformational in that sense. I love the way you're, you're talking about that. I think one of the things you said just now was the institution does the work. And I think that in a lot of settings, that's not necessarily how it's understood, right? Instead, you have to somehow conform to what the institution does rather than the institution doing that work to help you succeed. It seems to me that that's a really crucial um, flip in theological education, that, that's a, that, 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 that the whole way in which we think of theological education should be part of that shift. I mean, I, 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 you use the term basileia. I like to use the term kingdom instead of kingdom as a way of trying to think about what does it mean to be part of the reign, right? What does it mean to be in this, in, in the oneness that is, is unity, but not uniformity, right? The oneness mm -hmm. that, that we are all interconnected and interdependent. And there's an awful lot about the world right now that doesn't teach us that, right? It teaches us the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's this core the individualism and the self-interest, right? Yeah. And there's this and core institutions though. are usually about self-interest. So how do we how do we shift that? I mean, I, I think you're you you have consistently throughout your whole the whole time I've known you worked on this other way of thinking about it. And I've watched you do it within institutions, right? 
and trans, but that's really hard work. So what, what can you tell us about how to, how to do that, especially for some of us who find ourselves still in institutions that are functioning this other way? What are some, like, what are the practical things to do? What should we be doing? We need to know um, what are the resources that we have for doing it. Mm -hmm. And that's about finding people who have a heart for it. People may not always have all of the resources. You know, I may not find a donor who's going to give me $10 million, but I'll find someone who maybe can give me $150,000. But that's where their heart is at. And then you have to realize that the kingdom is about, you know, the Basilea is about um, sustainability. And sustainability is not about the glamorous, the huge, et cetera, et cetera, right? You know, the, the, Jesus says the Basilea is like a, a mustard, a, a tree, a mustard tree. And you take a look at that mustard tree and it's a bush. Mm -hmm. And maybe it gives a little bit of shadow to a few and, you know, one or two bird nests can hang around in it. Well, you know, it's not this big, glamorous, you know, huge piece um, that theologies of prosperity are going to speak about. It's something that's sustainable. Um, it's something that's going to give you what, every, what, what that community needs. Mm -hmm. So you're going to... Uh, spend time on quality. You're going to spend time on creating, uh, bringing all your creativity as a scholar, as administrators into what is sustainable and into finding people who want to work from that space of commitment. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised how many people are looking for such a space. And then you have to realize that it means sacrifices that there's a cost to it. You know, you're not gonna be making $90,000. Uh, you're not gonna be living in XYZ, you know, communities because you can make $90,000. It's gonna be really different. And you have to understand that that's part of the cost of sustainability. Mm -hmm. It means that more of us have a little less, but more of us can have what's needed. Mm -hmm. More of us can have enough, right? We can love enough. enough. It's about that enough. And so um, it's not about greed. So you can't continue to sacrifice at the altars of greed. That's so part of what it means. One of the things that's so interesting to me about watching what's happened in theological education in the last two decades in particular is the shift that's happening where um, more and more women, more and more Black and Indigenous and other people of color are becoming part of the academy, so to speak, right? And in the process, the sort of hyper-competitive individualism that was baked into what a graduate degree is about has had to shift. And to me, that's freeing, right? Like that's opening up. That's, that's saying, here's something of how the spirit is breathing through this. And, and your book talks a lot. I mean, you, you have some beautiful language about the spirit and the way in which um, paying attention to that um, gives life, breathes life. Can you say a little bit more? You also, you have this term, hold on, I'm going to look it up so I remember what it is. You talk about um, orthopathos. Mm -hmm. 
which is which is a different um that's not a term i'd run into actually before your book so can you say a little bit more about what orthopathos is sure let me go back a little bit to your um question about the spirit mm. just a little bit um so in my life the holy spirit has always been the one to guide mm -hmm and uh, to help us to be faithful to the commitments that we want to make. Um, Holy Spirit is empowering in that sense, right? It helps us to find the strength, the moral strength and courage yeah. that we need to keep up with our commitments. So you could be a scholar, you could read all about, you know, liberation theology and this and that. And, you know, you could do a presentation according to the calculation of the liberation and the decolonization and all of that. <laughs> and everybody's going to think great things about you. But the question is, and what does that look like? Right. Right. What does that look like in your life? What does that look like in the decisions that you make every day, et cetera, et cetera? Because then when you live into that, there, the knowledge that you, the theoretical knowledge that you had mm -hmm. now gets fleshed out, huh. and now you have much more that you understand about those theoretical pieces, mm -hmm. right? Because now you know what they really look like, now you know how we can move into them, and that's how we become organic scholars. Mm. That's why our scholarship becomes. Uh, places that are uh, incarnational, places that are uh, of activism, etc. And therefore, the fullness of the commitment, not only the mind-filled commitments, but the commitments of our lives, right, can take place. And so the spirit is very important for that to, to happen because there are too many other temptations, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. So let's just leave that there. I'm sure we'll talk about the spirit more later. The other piece that you talk about, orthopathos, that is a, a term that um, theologian Samuel Sullivan um, began to use. He's a Pentecostal theologian. And ortho means, you know, the right, mm -hmm. the right thing. Pathos is suffering. Mm -hmm. And... In Pentecostal theology, Hispanic Pentecostal theology, you think about what are the redemptive pieces of suffering so that you make suffering right. Mm. Um, not so that you continue suffering, not so that you tolerate suffering, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe not even so that you seek suffering. Hello. <laughs> but that you make it right. And that's a whole other process, you see, mm -hmm. so that it's redemptive. That's a whole other process. People have sacrificed before us so that we today can live in other ways. Mm -hmm. That sacrifice meant some suffering for them. They did it with the view that coming up after them were other generations and they invested in those other generations knowingly. And therefore, they turned around and they accepted that for right there and then, they didn't have all the means 
to turn that suffering around for themselves, but that they were going to work in that time and space to turn it around for others coming behind mm. them. Can I just underline that for a moment or emphasize it or highlight it? Because I think it's such a profoundly important insight, Elizabeth, and I think it's not, it's still not dominant, right? Like that's like, like the notion that you are part of a stream of time and that your work now, you made, I mean, I think about this a lot with teaching, right? Like I, I feel like I plant seeds. I have no idea mm -hmm. how they're going to bloom, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's visible to me in, in education, but I think in a whole lot of other ways, we're living in a world right now that desperately needs people to think in seven generations, right? Not to think just about mm -hmm. their own immediate space. And, and I don't, you know, I, you know this, I'm a Roman Catholic, Pentecostal, Hispanic Pentecostal theology has not been my heart space. And mm -hmm. yet there's so much there that I think is, is, um, offers insight and comfort and, and resilience, right? So, so when you're talking about how, how can suffering be redemptive, there's something about that that is, as you just pointed out, it's not about seeking it. It's not about- um, It's a strategy. Yeah. So say some more about that. Say about it. Talk about it as a strategy. It's a strategy. So the earliest Latinx scholars were the first to be working in their institutions, probably didn't have mentors, mm. didn't have an HTI, an HSP, an AET. They just found their way, found themselves in those institutions. And they knew that the doors had opened for them and they had to make sure that those doors stayed open for those coming behind them. Mm. They had to be strategic about what fights they would have, what fights they couldn't have. Mm. They had to find a way to create champions for, their, for the cause that they brought, to find allies. Otherwise, I'm not going to name names because these were personal conversations that I had with some of these scholars and some of them are still with us and some aren't. And I, um, I don't have their permission right now to just, mm -hmm. you know, name them. Right. And I, and I respect people's personal spaces, but in personal spaces, some scholars on a, on a difficult day would say the day that I'm not here, everything that I have fought for, all the stress that I've been through, and some of them have, been, you know, stress makes you ill. Mm -hmm. And as Latinx people, we're very aware of how it is that our bodies are connected to, to our work and to the stresses and to, you know, what's going on in our lives. And so they were able to say all this stress and the reason that I'm sick in X and Y way, because of the stress, um, it'll be for nothing. Mm because the day that I leave here, this institution will just turn around and shut down everything I've done. Hmm. And they'll go back to their good old ways again, right? On a bad day. Mm -hmm. But they had still, like you said, it is seeds that you plant. And they had indeed been strategic in terms of 
and voice is important. They had lifted their voices in particular arenas where even if people weren't doing it right away because institutions move very, very slowly, right? Mm -hmm. Very incrementally. Yeah, glacially. Oh, yes. That's what a great metaphor, glacially. <laughs> institutions move that way and you never think that they have made a move, but people are listening. Mm -hmm. And they may not be the people who in that moment have the power, but they are the people who in their own way are going to continue to echo mm -hmm. what your voice has lifted up mm -hmm. with great passion. And they're going to continue to move that forward in the spaces where they have influence. And influence is important. Coming into the consciousness of your full influence is important because it is a place of hope. Mm. I have influence in more ways than I know. And that gives me a hope. It's interesting, we, we're both talking about seeds and that's so important. And John 15 speaks about abiding mm -hmm. and we are called to bear fruit, which is different than having success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can even have someone who's working at an institution and after a while feels like, I'm just banging my head against this wall. I need to find another place where I can thrive and where I could see something happening, an institution that's more open. And you can leave that space, but your seeds were planted there, you see? And when you leave, you think you've not been successful. You leave thinking, oh, what a failure I was. But you left seeds there, honey. <laughs> And seeds are eternal because they continue to blossom. They continue to bring forth what they are about. And they continue to be and to bear you, that fruit. You know, there's, um, there's, of course, wonderful biblical stuff associated with this. And I'm thinking about the sower who sows the seeds and some falls on you know, good ground and some falls on grows up in weeds and all the rest of that. And to me, it seems like one of the challenges in that strategic visioning you're talking about is who's the community around you that helps you discern that. Like I think about times when I have been tempted to leave my current institution, like all I'm doing is enabling some bad stuff. And yet I have people in the community around me who have said to me each time I've wondered, you know, just because you could leave doesn't mean you should leave. And here's why you need to stay, right? So that it's a it's a communal discernment. It's not just your individual discernment. And mm -hmm. I think that for me, that's one of the things that's also been powerful about Latinx theologies is that there's this deep sense that it's not individual self-directed. Not that there isn't a person. Yes, there's persons. And yes, there's selves. I don't mean to, to say that it's like somehow all... There are three C's, if I might. Please. It's co-creation, collaboration, community. Ah, yeah. Right? We are here to co-create. We are a community and we're here to collaborate and therefore to continue to, cre to create um, lines of 
uh, work together with others. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in an institution, it's my job to bring others into the work in that institution. At the same time, when I'm doing that, um, that institution is no longer there all by itself. <laughs> that institution now has other people looking in on what they're doing, mm -hmm. right? So that's a different sense of accountability for an institution, right? When you're creating that kind of you know, collaboration, et cetera. Um, and you're co-creating together. And you're working for communities. You're bringing different communities together. We, we internalize community. And that uh, parable of the sower, for me, the important thing is, I remember the first time that um, someone talked to me about that, um, it was about, it was Sunday school and, and they were talking about that um, parable and it disturbed me greatly. Because for me, there was all this seed that was, was, was being wasted. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking and thinking about it. Like, how could it not come to waste? And I started thinking, well, you know, we need to prepare the ground. Mm -hmm. It's about preparing the ground, right? Abriendo surcos, right? It's about opening up the troughs. It's about making sure that there's water that gets to there. If, if it's not, you know, a ground where water usually comes and so on and so forth. It's about removing those rocks. It's about, you know, uprooting those, those, those weeds and so on and so forth. And that's part of the work that I've tried to do as well, right? Mm -hmm. Is to prepare the ground so that if I wasn't the one whose seeds were going to be received, I prepared the ground for the next one who's bringing seeds also and those seeds are going to have a different ground to fall on, right? Because otherwise that parable just disturbs me, right? <laughs> and so sometimes we have to prepare ground. And sometimes and we have to be, ground. And sometimes we have to be disturbed, right? I mean, that's <laughs> I think about the fruitfulness of what you just said. I mean, I I that's that's what keeps me going back actually to the Bible is the decent the continual challenging right like it like just when I think I've gotten comfortable with understanding it in a certain way I'll read a text or I'll be in a text with a text with a community that reads it differently and all of a sudden it's like oh wait a minute I have to think about this differently mm -hmm. and that's the thing I will say Elizabeth I work in a lot of very very white institutions very predominantly white institutions and one of the things that for me has been such a gift about um, widening the voices is that um, people hear things differently and and I would say play better together like it's really it can get really um, toxic and destructive when people are all in the same space or at least I'll just speak to kind of dominant spaces right predominantly white dominant spaces can be very toxic when they're only white folk in them. But when the conversation is um, blessed by the diversity of voices, right? I, there's a thing I say a lot, the more diverse the knowers, the more robust the knowing. And, and that for me is one of the gifts about the theology, theological education between the times series is that it's all these different lenses, right? It's all these different voices in mm -hmm. talking about something that I think we are all wanting to share and be a part of. Right. So when you talk about tending the ground, the ground, we we we're all on this earth together. We're all in this this space, even if we haven't ever or haven't always heard each other. I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's it is what is so powerful to me about the um, the stuff you've written. There's a 
there, I know I, I, I lifted this up for you, but this is this was my favorite paragraph in the whole book. It's on page 125. You wrote, so it is that the expressions of Christianity among the younger generations become more mobile, virtual, and mystical. Theological education may become more of a journey that it responds to the needs of that pilgriming community of discernment and activism than an institutional place with courses representing academic or church traditions to be transmitted. Actually, I'll just stop there. I mean, I love the fact that you have picked that up. And one of the things that, that gives me energy about theological education is watching what people coming into it are doing with it. Some of them are very young. Some of them in my context are much older. Some of them are people who are in their second and third you know, part of their lives who've suddenly said, I wanna be about something that has integrity, that is embodied, enfleshed, incarnate. And they're picking it up and they're listening to the spirit in ways that resist all sorts of other dominant and awful stories. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I'm going on here at length. I don't mean to, but you, you talk in that, you use this language of mystical and you talk about the spirit. And to me, that's, that's um, life, life giving breath, ruach blowing through us. That's what we need right now. There's a lot of death around us. Yeah. And that ruach is always going to be there. That breath, that life-giving breath is always going to be with us. Uh, when it's darkest, light is going to be, it's going to shine the best. Mm -hmm. And so let us continue in that way, right? Um, yeah, the younger generation has come to us wired differently. They know more than we used to know. They have been able to process that knowledge. And they are able to see their world and to say, this world cannot continue this way. Mm -hmm. And theological education for them needs to take different forms. It's not just about degree granting institutions, right? It's about so much more. It is about Mission Integral. It is about mixing with others and finding out together where we need to do co-creation, where we need the collaborations. It's, it's interdisciplinary, which is a really important piece. And we can't do it unless we collaborate. You can't do it alone where you are. I can't do it alone where I am. But together, we can imagine so much more and we can carry out so much more Amen. and so that's where i feel the spirit really moving theological education right and it is about continue uh, knowing i mean we can't always see the full picture institutions tend to look at smaller pictures mm -hmm. because it is about maintaining their self-interest so finding ways to look at a bigger picture it's even beyond social media because social media has become so much about self-interest, right? Yeah, and so much of it has become pretty toxic, actually. And so where do we go for that bigger picture? A bigger picture that wants to see the thriving of life. And only the spirit brings that. See, this, and this is something I think I... I, I 
watch so many people come to seminary because that's what they're looking for, right? They're looking for a bigger picture that, that supports the thriving of life, that takes seriously the anguish and the pain and the lament in their lives, but can see hope even in the middle of that, right? And I think about this, the last two years of the pandemic, for instance, if you just watch the, the sort of dominant consumer media, you got all the awful outrage and politicization and negative whatever. But if you listen to communities, you saw them taking care of each other. You saw people reaching out and trying to figure out how to be present. You saw people here in the Twin Cities, of course, in the middle of the pandemic, we also had the police murdering George Floyd and we had all of the stuff that erupted around that. And all of a sudden people were like, wait a minute, this is not us caring for each other. We need to understand where this pain comes from and we need to, to deal with it, right? We can't just ignore it. And that to me is also, you know, this, this um, you mentioned something earlier, you were saying, um, you used a phrase and I maybe heard it incorrectly, but um, what it set off for me was a th the contrast between a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. And a theology of the cross in the Lutheran world that I live in here is very keen on understanding that in the middle of the brokenness and the suffering, there, there walks Jesus, there walks the Christ, and there we can see in each other who the Christ is. And when you were talking about redemptive suffering, all of a sudden I thought, okay, that resonates. That's something mm -hmm. that I think mm -hmm. that's, I think that's this, um, congruent with this. I think in the middle of the, or, or right now, here we are, right, in a world that is under so much, there's so much um, violence and, and hatred and destruction happening all around us in intimate ways, in global ways. And yet the spirit breathes in the middle of that. It does. And Resilience and hope is for us to always be connecting to the spirit. Um, the pandemic was a pause. It was a forced pause. Mm -hmm. And in that pause, we were forced to reflect. And in that pause, the earth, was able to breathe differently. Mm -hmm. The earth herself was able to breathe differently and to regenerate and to bring forth life from herself. And in that pause, people were able to sort of rethink their lives, mm -hmm. reposition, think beyond themselves to others. Mm -hmm. People whose businesses were not thriving, they were closed. They started giving to the community. Mm -hmm. They weren't just thinking about their loss. They were thinking about giving. Um, they were thinking about their vocation. We're good at you know, cooking food, so let's cook for the community. Um, so in that pause, we got away from our busyness. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that in Chinese, 
there are two characters that make up the word busyness and it's kill heart. Oh, interesting. Kill heart. Huh. Right? The busyness kills the heart. And if you notice in the gospels, every time that you have this grandiose moment for Jesus, he disappears. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? He goes up to the mountain. He takes this pause moment. If I had been his PR person, I would have been, you know, distraught. Like, hey, dude, this is like when we need you now. This is like, you know, the picture moment that we want. We want you to keep, you know, interacting with people, et cetera, et cetera. This is it. You're missing it. Where the heck are you? Right? Jesus always disappeared in that moment. It was a moment for reflection to figure out what ne- what was coming next. It was a moment for reflection to figure out, you know, the currents of all the expectations of people that are coming up upon me, that's not where I need to be. I need to be in another place. What is that place? Mm. And he needed that pause. So if we want this place where we are connected to the Ruach, the spirit of life, we need those pauses. Here we are, this is Lent. We need those pauses. We you know, absolutely need them. We don't, and 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 yes, yes, yes. And in my world here, we don't do enough of it in in graduate theological education. I have students. Yeah, we talk about it. Yeah, yeah but we don't do and it. We'll read the classics. <laughs> we'll read the classics on spirituality, <laughs> and the classics are all about that. But um, you know, we just read about it. We don't engage. Right. And that's, that's, that's key. That's the difference. We have to engage it. We have to embody it. We have to. And that is part of knowledge. Yeah. There has to be time in the classroom mm-hmm. for us to speak not only of the abstract, not only about something, but to engage it and to embody it, to figure out what does this look like? because that is the other dimension of knowledge. (laughs) And we've not paid attention to this other dimension of knowledge. We cannot know fully these pieces until we engage all of the dimensions of the knowledge of those pieces. And you talked about a minute, a little bit ago about co-creating and collaborating in community. And one of the things I really love about that is that I think God created and God created us in God's image, which means we are creative and we need to find ways to to, um, nurture that creativity and support it. You know, I, I talk a lot in my Christian ed classes about a circle I call the create, share, believe circle. And too often we enter into the into that circle through belief in a lot of Christian ed places. We're so worried about making sure people have the right belief Mm -hmm. rather than how are we allowing them to create and out of that creativity, listening carefully in community collaboratively for what the spirit might be breathing in. Right. And I just, I, I'm so, I'd be curious. One of the other things that I, that I think about, in some, of the, in some of the settings where I work, Elizabeth, people are really keen on the text from Matthew that begins, um, uh, go therefore into the world and make disciples. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the ways I like to think about that text is that a disciple is a learner. So if you're going to go and make learners, you have to risk your own understanding. If you're going to learn, you have to risk your current understanding. And I love that. Like, I love the notion of us um, spreading out, you know, throughout all of creation and listening to all of creation and listening to each other. But I don't think that that's been how that text has been heard. And I think this is part of what I really liked about your book too, is that I think sometimes that text was used as an excuse by missionaries to say, here's what it is, I'm gonna give it to you. (laughs) And you have to take it this way rather than here, I'm with you, walking with you, listening. What can you tell me about what you're hearing? And perhaps this will be a good place for us to sort of come to a close in the conversation. Um, there, there's a dimension of power that we haven't talked about. Uh, yes. And so reading the text the way that you suggest and speaking about co-creation, right? Reminds us that if we read it in the way that it was given, and you have to receive that giving. It's about power over. Mm-hmm. I have the knowledge. I'm giving it to you. You have to take it this way. I continue to have power over. Mm-hmm. And that's how institutions see themselves, right? Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about co-creation, we're talking about power with mm-hmm. and power from within. hmm you're talking, you're, you, you spoke about our being uh, creators and coming in touch with who we are as creators. So as creators, when we are in the process of creating from the places of the depths of our own gifts, then we're doing power from within. Mm-hmm. And that process itself helps us to continue to discover who we are. Who is a creator? What more did the creator place in me? Mm-hmm. And how do I continue to know what that is? And that's power from within. But when I join that to community, I think it's power with. Yes. Right? And especially in the way that you just said. And young people are looking for that type of knowledge. It's a knowledge that you, your generation saw it in a particular way. But when I sit with them, they say, we don't want the prescribed places. We want to be able to look at these questions anew, to look at this in the midst of our own context and to ask these questions and others. And we want to know that we can seek not just answers, but the mystery of God Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the mystery of God in who we are to one another. Mm -hmm. And so that is the mystical piece. We're looking for that mystery together. Mm -hmm. And the answers that we had before, there may be dimensions of that that remain. But they're being opened up. And there may be things that we say, wow, that this this wasn't it. And we have to let it go. And we have to see what is it? Mm -hmm. What do we understand in this time and place Mm -hmm. that it is? And that's what young people are seeking. And that's where theological education needs to be able to go. Hmm. Amen. 
I think you're right. I think we just ended. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful note on which to close. Thank you for um, the dialogue, Mary. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. It's been great to talk to you about Atando Cabos, and I look forward to more conversations in the future. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.